Welcome to the podcast that puts a finger on the pulse of medicine and technology. On this show, you'll hear from investors, industry executives, and healthcare providers on the science and business of medicine. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib, and this is the State of MedTech. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. I know I took a little bit of a break for about a week or two. Don't worry, I'm back. I got messages saying, hey, is everything okay? When are we gonna get a new episode? So yeah, I'm I'm back. Um, I was actually at the Life Science Intelligence Summit at Dana Point, uh, our industry's most prestigious emerging medtech investor summit. And I was very honored to be invited to speak on a panel, one on uh, Web3 and NFTs. And another one on upending the medical sales model. Now, good for you guys. Scott Pantel, who's the founder of Life Science Intelligence, uh, the world's greatest uh, life science market intelligence uh, uh, research company, has released the copyright. And he said, we can, we can publish it on our podcast. So you guys get to hear it. It'll come out in the next few weeks. But today, I got a very special guest on, somebody who I actually went to medical school with. So this is a good friend of mine, Dr. Chet Donnelly. Uh, who I met when I was at medical school at Texas Tech. Now, for those of you who are surgeons or physicians listening to this, I got great news for you. This episode is also powered by CMFI, which means that after listening to the episode, you click the link in the show notes below, take 30 seconds, just write a few sentences of what you learned, and by submitting that, you're going to unlock an AMA PRA Category 1 CME credit. That's right, you're gonna get a CME credit through your reflection on this. You don't have to pay a lot of money to go to a conference or anything. Literally 30 seconds, you write your reflection and you're gonna get a, a CME credit. So let me tell you a little bit about Chet. So Chet, I have to mention because we both uh, grew up in the great state of Texas, but he is a third generation Texan. Um, he's a true local and really is passionate about patient care, but more specifically, taking the most uh, least, in, or the least, most least, can you say that most least, uh, invasive uh, uh, approaches to spinal surgery to really minimize patient pain and accelerate um, uh, recovery. Uh, Chet is also extremely active on social media because he puts out so much content to educate the general public about spine surgery, whether it's his TikTok, his Instagram, or even on LinkedIn. He puts up so much great content. I highly recommend you follow him. His links to his handles are in the show notes below. You can just look up Donnelly Spine Consult. Um, I love his LinkedIn posts because uh, they're they're pretty much like miniature uh, miniature case studies from residency, right? Um, so Dr. Donnelly, so weird to call him Dr. Donnelly. I just know him as Chet, but Dr. Donnelly graduated from Highland Park, Park High School in Dallas. Then he earned magna cum laude honors while at Southern Methodist University. And while he was attending medical school at Texas Tech a Health Science Center, he graduated top of his class with a distinction in research and then completed his orthopedic surgery training at the University of Miami Hospital slash Jackson Memorial Hospital, a very prestigious program. He continued his spine surgery training as a fellow at the world-renowned Rothman Institute in Philadelphia and as a member of the Phi Beta Kappa and Alpha Omega Alpha Honor Society. So extremely established, but at the same time, such a humble guy. And more importantly, uh, somebody who's really got a great vision about what it means to be a surgeon in this new age, in this new era, where communication channels like social media are open. And to say, how do we use this to make medicine better for our patients, for our industries, and for 
uh, one another as surgeons. So without uh, further ado, here's our episode with Dr. Chet Donnelly. Enjoy it. And we are on. Hey, everybody, this is Omar M. Khatib, your head of state and host of the State of MedTech. I'm joined by a very dear friend. And of course, I always introduce that way because I, you know, a lot of people that I bring on, I consider dear friends, people I've known for a while. But this guy I've known for quite a long time. Uh, and that's Dr. Chester Donnelly III. I call him Chet, though, because Chet and I went to medical school together. Right. And not only do we go to medical school together, I used to whoop his ass <laughs> on a weekly basis in flag football. That's, that's true. right. That is that's true. true. That is true. Where Omar beat me on the field, I beat him in the classroom. So. That's yeah. I will. I will admit. I mean, he, you know, it should tell you a lot because I ended up dropping out, and then he ended up becoming a spine surgeon. So that that is that is absolutely true. Well, Omar, I mean, whenever was... whenever I see a baby Gap Under Armour shirt, I always think of you and streaking down the field to, to catch those touchdowns. I, man, what a great man! This is what a great way to kick this thing off. This is going to be a lot of fun. Wow. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is like, you'll recognize Chet, some of the books behind me. So I got some of the classics, man. I got Robin's pathology. I got Harrison's. I got Schwartz's surgery. Robin's man. That's a classic. That's oh, such good, a good man. book. Probably not too many it's a good book. Those look pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I want to invite, uh, Dr. Donnelly, which I can't even say that, like, I just, we're just going to roll with Chet, you know, Fine but Chet, man. you know, so, so Chet, Chet is, um, in my, in my humble opinion, and I've, I've been in this, you know, industry for almost 10 years now and, and come across a variety of surgeons. I started my current spine surgery. Chet is definitely the rising star in the world of spine surgery. I think he has a great big vision, not only for technology and spine surgery, but more specifically how surgeons fit within this digital ecosystem. We've had the advent of web 3.0 and 4.0 with the metaverse coming out. And I think Chet is somebody who is uh, far ahead of his time right now. And so I wanted to have him on to kind of talk about all these things, but more specifically, and again, I can tell you right now, it'll be a repeat guess. What is the state of spine surgery? And then what does the future look like? Because the other day he and I were catching up and he had some pretty provocative, edgy opinions about that. And I was like, Dude, why why are we talking about this on a phone call? Why don't you just come on the show? True, man. Okay, well, so, of course. So, Chet, bef I was going to say, before we get into it, for the audience who's just meeting you right now, can you give us a quick, like, one-minute high level on who you are, where are you from, where did you train? So, very Dallas local. I went to, like, born in a Dallas hospital here. I live in Dallas now. Went to high school and college here at SMU. It used to be uh, very good at football back in the 80s. For those that don't know, haven't been any re relevance necessarily since then. Afterwards, went to med school with you at Texas Tech, then to Miami for orthopedic training, and then spine surgery at Rothman. And now I'm back in Dallas and practicing for a little bit. Uh, and I got a four-person spine group here in uh, Dallas, Addison, Plano, Frisco, and as far north as Dallas keeps expanding. So my you know training, just like everyone else, for the most part, is a lot of degenerative spine. And in that, I do a lot of deformity also, a lot of cervical, a lot of lumbar. My training maybe a tad more so than others. We did a lot more robotic spine surgery maybe than other places just because we were in Philly. The headquarters of Globus is right there in Philly. So we've had, you know, a lot of access. We had a lot of robots, and we just did a lot of the robotic spine surgery. And Dr. Vaccaro, kind of one of the early creators of kind of robotic spine surgery, he was there. We were doing cases with him every week, kind of seeing him work through those complex robot-type cases and trying to do even, like, simultaneous surgery with, like, anterior and posterior at the same time with the robot. So that was kind of a little bit of my niche. We also had some like the pioneers in minimally invasive surgery that helped train me. It was like Mike Wang at Miami and Greg Anderson 
and uh, at Rothman. So I have a kind of a keen niche for minimally invasive surgery. But, you know, one thing I always say, I hate cliche expressions. I think every surgeon, and I'm guilty of this, says, oh, I'm a complex and minimally invasive spine surgeon. It's like, okay, everyone is. So to say that your your niche is minimally invasive spine surgery, it's like, cool, so is everybody. So it's not like that groundbreaking thing to say. And I think, you know, the first thing to do is call it out when someone's like, oh, you know, my specialty is minimally invasive. It's like, yeah, so is everybody these days. I get it. It's like it's like when marketers say, I'm a digital bar- marketer. I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, sure you are. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. everybody else. Yeah, like I, what I, other marketing? What other marketing is there? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of my niche. That's what I've been building. The uh, the whole social media thing kind of you know came without being expected. It's, it was a sad day when I told my little sister that she was a millennial, and she told me that I was a millennial, and I had to go Google like your year of birth to see. And I was like, I was like, damn it, I really am a millennial. I had no idea. Like that's very depressing. That's what I consider humbling is when you get kind of put in your place. Um, could be worse. Was, you could be Gen Z. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so <laughs> kind of just growing up, you know, just, you know, you and me, we grew up having Facebook and grew up having Instagram and just using it. And so then kind of being around it and then residency, we're using it and then kind of just, you know, mushroomed into this thing where I started putting up, created like a anonymous account. No one knew I had essentially, because I didn't want to get in trouble for it, for lack of better words. And was putting up board questions and cases, you know, I'd go a year or two without putting anything up just because, you know, it's a lot of time for no gain back then. And now subsequently it kind of becomes a bigger deal. And now that's where the future is going in terms of using your social media essentially as a NAS podium instead of waiting once a year and maybe getting a NAS podium. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a academic multi-million dollar research team behind you, I can use a free app and show via screenshot anyone wants to see it that I can connect with 80,000 people in one day. And these aren't just, you know, random people. I'm not trying to like be Oprah and talk to the whole world. I'm really trying to talk to other people that have an interest in spine surgery, surgery, mentorship, medical school. That's kind of my niche I'm focusing on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right about that because, you know, again, no knock on uh, those who are like in academia who have those multi-million dollar research teams behind them, but that's not what everybody wants to do. I mean, my own father was a general surgeon of 35 years. And then not in my opinion, just from his peers and other people, you know, he was a pretty damn good surgeon. He wasn't an academic surgeon though. And so do surgeons in the private practice world, are they, there, is their opinion a little bit less valuable? No, definitely not. If anything, and, and people who are uh, the, the med tech execs and the vets who are listening to this will all agree with me. When we, when we talk about technology adoption, we say, who, you know, the, the one or two or five surgeons that really push the adoption of X, Y, or Z, where were they? Nine out of 10 times, not, not at a big powerhouse academic center, it's just a surgeon sure. with a small private practice, like in, in somewhere outside of a city. It, it seems sure. like I've just sure. heard that I so many, agree. so many times. Yeah, so I, think, I do agree with that. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think, I think that, um, social media has this kind of like democratizing factor to allowing people to influence. Now for you, you have a really good, uh, audience so far, which is you have a few thousand on LinkedIn. You have about 15,000, I believe on Instagram now for your, um, for your Donnelly spine consult. And I'll leave the links in the show notes, but you put a lot of cases up. What I love is that you do a lot of interesting case studies with, with real life things. Like, you know, if a sports events happen like football or UFC, you, you take something from that and then start tying it to a case to kind of explain. So it's really educational for, I think, medical students and residents and fellows. It's educational for other spine surgeons. It's also educational for people who are in the general public, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of all, whole goal with it. Like I, you know, used to start doing it, just putting up kind of board review questions and just, you know, doing that for fun. And then I started putting up publications that 
other people did. And I was like, well, I can actually promote my own publications that I did. So like one thing I say is like, you know, what a time to be alive where normally you'd have to pay 1200 bucks to get a every other month journal of the newest publications to read about those. And that's great. But like, what a time to be alive to where I could put up a publication that I think is pretty cool, not one of my own, but someone else's. And then through the comments and through that form, you could have a journal club with like people in Egypt, people in Brazil, even the author of that paper, I usually tag them. They could get in on the comments and tell you kind of their method. So if you want to recreate that study or kind of tweak something, you know, no other time you'd be able to do that. You can't really do that at conferences when people are creating, you know, if you're going to go maybe in front of your 80 peers at one of these big conferences and ask a question that you might be embarrassed or think is stupid to ask, you know, that's pretty intimidating. But if you have like a forum such as Instagram or LinkedIn where I put up a journal publication, everyone debates it like that's better for patient care and that's better for medicine like the more questions you ask about something the more we can even like critique it like oh it doesn't make sense why did this x y and z happen like that's kind of where the future of medicine should be we shouldn't be 100 percent relying on once every couple months journals that you might read and then you read it and can't really have much dialogue for it. it's kind of a cool asset of this social media that I wasn't really planning on doing when i first started it but kind of these like weekly journal clubs that i put up is pretty cool Absolutely. And even, you know, the, the, the annual conference, like I love annual conferences, but it's just like once a year and that's a lot of time and, and things are moving very, very fast. And, you know, we didn't even cover, for example, like Twitter, you know, on Twitter, um, you know, I discovered this many years ago, the nephrologists of all people, nephrologists have this insanely thriving and engaging community on Twitter. It's called hashtag Neph Twitter, where Every month they have a, a Twitter journal club, so they they put up a case and they all discuss it. They even have a um, the social media nephrology social media collective, where essentially it's a one year okay. fellowship where you're managing different aspects of the Neph Twitter community, right? Because they see it as such a valuable asset. And even me, when I was in the nephrology world for 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 a few years, I, if I had a question, I was able to get on Twitter, throw it up on hashtag Neph Twitter. And nephrologists would chime in on really interesting cases. I personally, no offense uh, to our nephro to who did our nephrology uh, unit back in uh, in medical school. I think I kind of learned more about nephrology on Neph Twitter <laughs> than I did like in our units. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, fair point. Yeah, know. it's like that's kind of the exciting part of it too. And then I'm also able to put up cases. The way I always do it is I put up like a case, you know, I always, I never, I always kind of rip or in my mind, I kind of like when someone's putting up their floros from the interop, it's like, that's great. But like, you know, one, not super safe. Cause like if the patient does bad, why are you sharing their images? Two, do you really have their permission to use like their actual interop pictures? And then three, like, I usually think it's better to wait to the three month or six month fault, make sure everything went well before you're trying to teach others like, Hey, here's the slick way I did it. It went great for the first four hours after surgery, at least. So what I do is That's a good I point. Up, I put up pre-op images, MRI, CT. I always think like, you know, if you're going to share a case, like uh, someone with real cojones puts up the MRI, like let's have some debate. Anyone can put up x-rays and say, that's, here's the lateral idea. That's a great point. Like, All right. Man, like, I, I'm glad you called that out because I, I sometimes agree, I see it. MRI. And again, yeah, I don't, yeah, I was like, sometimes I see it. I'm like, I'm like, you know, this is misleading, right? I'm like, you I know, don't. certain angles, you can make it look real good. <laughs> so, I agree. Yeah, I agree, man. That's a good point. So that's a good put point, up, like, man. The, uh, pre-op and all this stuff, and like, what would you do? Some considerations. I try to throw people off. Like, sometimes it's not even a surgical case. It's actually like a um, like a radiculopathy case that's like from a virus or something like that. It's not actually from something that needs surgery. And then get a lot of people to debate it, kind of question what we should do. It gets some. It, you know, it's pretty cool. I get people from like again. I use Egypt, South Korea, Australia. There's a lot of surgeons there, and like, 
you know, their use of endoscopic technology is like five years more advanced than what we're doing here in the States and just kind of hearing how they would treat some really complex thing with even more minimally invasive technology is cool. And then about four or five days later, I'll post my results. And then, you know, when I'm reading all their things, I'm like, oh man, you know, maybe I could have done that. And, you know, even I'm learning from these posts, like I wouldn't have thought of uh, treating it that way or like getting that additional study. Like wouldn't have you know, necessarily changed what I did, but it's, you know, it's helping me also. And uh, I hear it all the time, even from like my other kind of young surgeons, just looking at those, listening to comments, like, oh, that's actually a pretty slick way to do it um, as well, or another differential diagnosis I wouldn't have thought of. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for, for these kind of cases, is most of your, I know it's it's on multiple platforms, but most of your engagement and, and discussion is happening mainly on LinkedIn or on Instagram with spine mainly, surgeons? Mainly on um, Instagram. Instagram is kind of my bread and butter. I guess kind really? of I started. I so just kind of started I just want to make sure I... I just want to make sure that I that people heard that because yeah. people people laugh about this when I when I talked about this many years ago they still do now. The most engagement and discussion with other spine surgeons are happening on your posts on Instagram. Yeah, but that's mine. I think it's kind of you got to know your audience. Like I say, if you're trying to how about this? You'll like this. If you're trying to find like a straight romance, you're not going to go to Grinder. You got to know which app is built for everything. If you're trying to find some guys. <laughs> out going clubbing every day and that's like your romance you're looking for you're not going to farmers only you got to find the exact app for each thing so like instagram kind of bridges everything linkedin's more for industry more for professionals i agree you're not and, and none of these things i'm not trying to get any patient interaction that's not my goal at all if you want to get patients that's where you should target facebook maybe even tiktok like those are kind of the apps for that when i'm trying to target other referral patterns primary doctors med students things like that that's very instagram for me and then i'm putting more emphasis on linkedin now um, that's just kind of where I'm at now. I've just kind of started with Instagram and the, yeah, I think every doctor, you know, we don't realize that we're small business owners or small business professionals. So I remember, mm-hmm. you know, you and I were talking about maybe like two years ago, three years ago. And you were telling me like, man, you got to do more on LinkedIn. I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like I'm just a doctor. Why would I get on LinkedIn? You're like, dude, you're a businessman. You're a professional also. It's like, that's why right. are you not? I was like, oh, I'm not trying to, you know, get insurance or talk about stocks or anything like that and you're like man you're missing the boat and so i do credit you um you <laughs> i like appreciate and you're one of the few that listen to me i know you're one of the few that listen to me i told this to a lot of our classmates and some of them are coming around now and they're like oh how do i get started? i'm like yeah it's, it's better late than never but like man if he just put like a little tiny bit of effort back then it's you know compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world for a reason it's the same thing there with these go. things and i think the you know the business and technology of medicine really lives on LinkedIn. With Instagram, I love Instagram; it's a great platform. But if you if you haven't already noticed, it's more difficult to grow and have reach on Instagram because you're it's just so much more competitive. LinkedIn, while it's not as competitive and it's faster to grow, it has this weird um, dynamic where, for example, on Instagram, you can you know somebody can come out with something just really ridiculous and just blow past you in terms of engagement, followers, etc. Overnight. On LinkedIn, it's easy to grow and and do it repetitively, but you really have to demonstrate, you know, uh, deep domain expertise and knowledge. Otherwise, like very quickly, you know, peers and people within the LinkedIn community are, are like, yeah, this guy's like full of it, you know. So it's yeah. very interesting dynamics. Yeah, I, I tell I people, agree. you know what I tell people? I think you'll like this a lot. God, I hope I don't get kicked. I'm, I'm going to say this just because it's it's hilarious, but I, I hope I don't get banned off LinkedIn. LinkedIn is kind of like the North Korea of social media, and okay. you know, minus all the bad things of of North Korea, but it's kind of like the North Korea of social media because I know, like, I'm connected to people who have 
hundreds of thousands, a couple of them who have millions of followers on like Instagram or on Twitter or on TikTok or on Facebook. And they'll be like blowing up and they have like multi-platform reach. But some of them, just because like LinkedIn's had, I think a marketing problem are just not on LinkedIn. So they just, they don't even know what's going on on LinkedIn. That's why I, I say right. it's like kind of like the North Korea social media. Yeah, you know? that's a fair thing. It's like, uh, you know, you can only pick so many platforms maybe. Like I don't mess with Twitter. Yeah. I have a Twitter account. I think I have like, 20 followers it's just it's uh you know you gotta pick it's not a few as easy and go as it sounds it. like copy and paste everything it's gotta be a lot shorter i can only do like one or two pictures there and so yeah it's, it's just, i don't do tiktok yeah you know? it's um i only i'm embarrassed to say i do it but not nearly as much as i used to you, be man there. you're on tiktok i can't it's, now uh, that that alone is make, making me want to open a tiktok look man okay my argument but then all, just, all of china is going to know what i'm up to <laughs> they already know man don't even worry about that one of my buddies in that Harb, <laughs> he's a joint surgeon in Baltimore. He was one saying, like, you should go on TikTok. And I was like, okay, there's not too many 14-year-old kids with spine stuff. What, Like, what are you doing? He's like, one, remember, we're not marketing to patients. I'm like, that's true. He's one of my counterparts in this. It's a guy named Matt Harb. He's great. He's like, we're not marketing to patients. He's like, the way I use it, he's like, I do the videos, I save them, and then I use it on my other platforms. And I'm like, yeah. now you're talking my language. So I do that, and I you know, also put those same videos I save on YouTube, and then I put those YouTube videos on my own website. And so people that know even a little bit about SEO and website SEO, you know, YouTube's a huge thing for SEO. So if I have content on YouTube that links back to my website that someone else is clicking, when someone types in Spine Dallas, that helps me without having to pay any money, jump up on the top 10 features, the more YouTube videos I have. And I'm just doing that through that's TikTok. That's exactly so right. That's my argument why someone should do TikTok. You know, I'm not trying to get TikTok famous, I'm more so just trying to make content for my other platforms. But you know, if you blew up like like a Doctor Miami on TikTok, yeah, I mean, why not? Like, look, I mean, you know, I'm I'm focused on developing a a, a business and a brand and reputation like within the medical technology medical industry. But if for whatever reason I blow up, and I don't know, I guess things I'm interested in, like you know, books and everything, Penguin and Harper Publishing is like, hey, can we just pay you like, you know, six figures a year just to you know just to sort of be our brand <laughs> our brand representative? Like, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I tell people this all the time. I'm, I don't know how I'll do it. I, I, I'm on, I'm on a quest. Like one of my random little goals is that I want to be the first B2B marketer to get a shoe deal. I want, okay. I want to be first. Okay. So B2C, B2C marketer who's gotten a shoe deal. That's already happened. That was Gary Vaynerchuk. But I want to be the first B2B. At least I think, I mean, that, that might be, that's going to be very competitive as well. But at least within the medical healthcare, I think I, I think I got a good shot. Uh, good shoe I'm, deal. Nike, I'm all about, if you're I'm listening. I'm all about getting sponsored. If someone wants to sponsor me, when you say there's people, when I lived in Miami, we always say, oh, that that person's sponsored by that person. And uh, like that girl's sponsored by the, like, those guys, and they get to kind of do whatever they want. I was like, I'm happy to be sponsored myself. If someone wants to, if Stryker wants to put a tattoo on my shoulder, I'll get like a Stryker, a Zimmer right here if they want to sponsor me. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you, know, I'll, I'll <laughs> ab absolutely. You know what's funny? How is it that with with all these like again consumer brands coming out, you have figs who blew up in the scrub world. How is it that nobody came up and said, "Hey, we're gonna make a performance athletic gear for surgeons, like shoes, like you know what I mean? Like yeah, how how is that not happening? Smaller market, man. It's gotta be smaller. There's only like a thousand. Like uh, there's look if you yeah. look up cardiothoracic surgeon, there's ten thousand of them in the United States alone. And you just look. You market. Look, you make a. Sh you make shoes. What what would be a hundred bucks for Nike? Market it by four or five hundred bucks. Special special eight hour uh, 
eight hour long technology for standing? I don't know. So my first couple months, like, you know, everyone's not super busy trying to stay productive. And there's one of things like my wife, you know, she goes on Instagram and sees like girls pretty much getting paid to say what purse they're using. And they're like, Oh, I like using this purse also. And I was like, well, hell I like Ariat boots and I wear Ariat boots every case in the OR. I was like, man, if Ariat, so I sent them an email, like two emails, no response back to me. Like, Hey, if you guys want to send me a pair of boots, I'm 11 D I will uh, put up like an Instagram thing. I was like, I get at least that was back a little earlier on. I was like, I get at least 30,000, 40,000 views on this. Um, love just to say, I love your boots. I wear them anyway. And like nothing. And I was like, dude, that would be the easiest $200 of advertising they could ever do. And you just wonder like, you know, obviously More than that. super smart people that run these companies, but like the people that get these emails, like, oh, you just they, are totally missing the opportunity really... here. Yeah, there's really not actually a lot of these companies. They don't have super smart <laughs> people. I mean, like, look, look again. Fair, like, fair, 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 I tell but... people, I tell people all the time. Like, when it comes to micro influencers, um, you're you're way better off engaging, you know, five micro influencers who are physicians who have like, let's say, a blog, whatever. They have a small following of like a, a few thousand people than getting like one, like one massive name, which at the end of the day. Everybody and their mother's going after that one massive whale of a name. They yeah. don't really care about you. And then to actually engage with them, they're going to be super transactional. They don't give a damn about your company. They're like, yeah, yeah sure. Man. Like, look, here's my price. Here's what it's going to take. And oh, by the way, everything you're going to do, you know, you're going to give it to us for free. It, well, I, awesome. I just wanted a pair of Ariat boots. I was like, I retired my pair from a uh, residency. It had all forms of HIV and hepatitis C on it. And I needed some nice, fresh, clean boots to get out of my such a you know, I got to tell you, you know, so being being a guy from like West Texas, like I appreciate how Texan you are. It really means a lot. And like now is now flattery, I'm stuck. you can tell a Texan. I know. I dude, I'm I'm stuck by choice because of my family, you know. I'm I'm a family man. But here in Southern California, it is beautiful here. I do love it. I miss Texas. I miss the people there. I I I'm having a baby boy in a few months. There you and go. the fact that you that you in Florida had a child and you you made sure that dirt from texas was shipped <laughs> over so that it could be put under the bed so they were That's born true. on texas so, let me tell That's you true. as 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 insane as that well oh i do i did know that i saw that <laughs> as as crazy as i was i was i admired the hell out of that i'm like this yeah. this is a man this is a man that's proud of where he's from i love that yeah one of my uh one of my doctors dr chin he was like you know this guy he's he, he's just like He'll say anything he's thinking about that. And he's like, he's like, I heard some a rumor about Texans, and I thought he was messing with me. I'm like, what's that? He's like, I heard that they'll fly in soil from Texas and put it under the kid's bed when they get born. I'm like, I actually did do that. He's like, you're kidding me. I was like, no, like I actually did that like two weeks ago. Did someone tell you that? He was like, no, I just heard that. I had to ask him. Like, yeah, I definitely did do that. He was like, he's I, like, I might do, I might do it. My wife might kill me though. I, I, I really want to do it. maybe because you had like a solid like. Looked like five or ten pounds or so. It was pretty impressive. You gotta get the whole bed like, up on it. You know, maybe that could be your oh, new man. business model. You just sell soil from each state. So you get someone from Iowa. They're like, man, I want my kid born in Iowa. Iowa, Iowa soil. What's the uh, soil Iowa? Soil. Yeah, Iowa soil. You know what? Look, there's a lot of people who are really proud in the South and Midwest. I feel like that could be. It could be done, man. It's it, a small it's, market, but I think that this is where your true calling is. So, but you know soil. what? This is so. This people is you want to talk about. That's true. That you know what? Here's right? here's the this is a whole yeah. Well, this is a whole other po uh, podcast. But there's this concept and strategy called category design, meaning that you don't go into an existing market and compete. You go and create a completely new market, which at the beginning will be nothing. But if you find okay. something that has a new problem, new 
and different, you can blow it up. So back in the 90s, when Evian pulled a bunch of people, you know, hundreds of people say, hey, what does this taste like? It tastes like water. Would you pay for this? Everybody said no. But here we are. Bottled water is a multi, multi billion dollar industry. Yeah. So, you know, anything's possible. Have the biggest markups in the world and coffee. But coffee's a it's, good drug. So, that's, I'm that's having one right now. Up. Yeah. That's a different Just, markup reason. I, yeah. <laughs> so, so getting <laughs> this, I need to see, I knew this podcast was going to be great. <laughs> I, I know for a fact I'm going to get so many different messages and emails saying, like, you got to have that guy back on. Like, I'm going to have you back on. But let's talk real quick about, Spine technologies. So you, yeah. I, you, I've seen you. You've used navigation. You're a robotic. You know, uh, you're a robotic surgeon as well. You use a lot of interesting technology. Let's call some shots. So, what is the current state of spine surgery as it is, and where do you see it going 10, 15 years from now? You can take this in any direction you want, and by all means, call out whoever you want. No. So uh, <laughs> you think about it, like. Things like the robot, I think, are great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not bashing the robot. But the problem with the robot right now, and, I mean, you're more an expert than I am because you used to work in this field, is they're just too expensive. But it's like getting, like, a nice 70-inch TV, which would be awesome, crazy price. But, like, you try to buy that exact TV in, like, four years from now, one year from now, the prices just slash. So, like, ro robots are awesome. Until they get to be a lot cheaper, they're not going to be able to take off. And, the, you know, maybe we'll get to the day where it's, you just pull it up to the side of the bed, almost like a metrics tube system, and you can just plop them in. And, like, it's easy to have multiple small little arm robots that hook up to the bed in each hospital. And, like, that's where you get the argument of where it gets better. One of the better, more fun papers I've read on robot technology is um, Qureshi wrote it. He's at uh, HSS. It was, like, an international journal of spine surgery. just came out who, last who year. Who wrote this? Qureshi. Oh, Qureshi. Okay. Yeah, it's great. Pretty much he compared the robotic revolution to the industrial revolution and like a lot of the pearls and like a lot of things he was i read that about. i read that article that was really good it was kind of yes. a fun paper the thing he keeps arguing is like it's all about the reproducibility of doing something and like yes all of us surgeons say we're great at freehand screws it slows us down to otherwise like okay i agree with that but you know that's maybe you're doing like four screws six screws if you're doing like a bunch of cases you're getting tired at the end of the day like that's where sometimes make mistakes, but robots don't get tired. Robots don't make mistakes. I agree. It's garbage in, garbage out. But if you have a good CT scan, you're not messing around. Like the accuracy rate is about 98%. And so they're just yeah. safer. If you get a fast team, you get everything just going better. Like, yes, it's going to be slow this first four or five times. And then the surgeon by that point is like, oh, I don't want to do robot anymore. Like it's been two or three times. Like this is slow as molasses. I don't want to keep doing it. Like, okay, I agree. So I'm not saying like robots are like in the immediate future of the success, but like, dude, five or sorry, 10, 15 years from now when they get cheaper, faster, better, like we can use them to do so many things. Like another thing I hate about, the only reason I don't sometimes like doing tubular decompressions, like through the small 18 millimeter incisions is like closing that deep fascia layer. Like it's sometimes like it's such a pain in the butt. It might take me 20 minutes to throw like two or three stitches. Well, if you had like you're a little not, robot. You're not operating on small people either. Like they're pretty big exactly. people. Exactly. We're in sometimes. Texas. We're in Texas. But if you had like a little yeah. robot that could come through and just like throw a couple stitches, like, man, that'd be so much easier. I know no one's, like, thinking that's where we're headed or anything like that, but, like, who knows? In, like, 10, 15 years from now, like, that could be something that just is an additional thing of robots. We can't just think of robots as placing pedicle screws. That's not where we're going to have our um, well, long-term success with those. Let, let me touch on an area that, like, uh, spine surgeons might be like, no, 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 that robot can't do that. Because, like, pedicle screws, a lot of surgeons take a lot of pride in placing them, but for the most part, it's kind Agreed. of, like, monotonous. Agreed. And it's just like, whatever. 
what if there's a robot that can do a disectomy? Would you would you want that robot? I mean, not on myself. I agree, but it's also like you know, how about this? We see all these movies of like Prometheus, where it's like in hundreds of years from <laughs> yeah. now, you can go into a little medical bay and it fixes you up for everything. Like at some point, I think everyone will agree. At some point in not our lifetime, but in the future, that will happen. And so why are we saying that we can't just keep taking those next steps every couple of years here of like the robot doing something? So it's not a crazy concept to think that a robot will do all of its surgery for you. It's not going to happen in our lifetime. I hope it doesn't happen in our kids' lifetime because then we'll all be out of business. But it's just something like that's where we're going. It's not like you can develop that overnight. It's like we're it's like making um, space shuttles going to Mars. Like we're not going to make that back in the 60s. We kind of have stuff that gets us to the moon. We have stuff that gets us back and forth to the space station more efficiently. Kind of more we commercialize it, the more industry gets involved, like the better this technology gets. And, that you know, industry can't get a bad name for trying to make a profit on these things. It's not like, like if Musk and all these guys were not able to make a profit, um, which I guess technically it doesn't on some of the companies, but on some of these things, then why would they keep trying to develop these new technologies? And that's where we need industry to kind of push it forward. They need money for additional research. I totally agree. Well, so one one of the challenges, though, is, I mean, we've talked about this before, is the barrier to adoption. So, I mean, cost is, is definitely one thing, but it's really, it goes beyond cost. I mean, one of those things is, you know, at, you know, and I want you to kind of touch more upon this, is that the, you know, the trade-off in terms of when you adopt a new technology, like even if it's better for the patient, right, or it makes a marginal difference, right? Um, what's the trade-off to a surgeon? And there's, you talked about the reasons why adoption is going to happen with younger spine surgeons versus like a, forget about an older spine surgeon. Let's just say a surgeon who's like 10, 20 years out of, out of training. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay. So if you're, you know, 20 years out of training, say you're in your late forties, fifties, man, you're in the prime of your career, whatever, whatever field you're in, usually in your forties, fifties, you're in some of the highest earning potential. You're at the most efficient you're like working hard, but you're also getting the most reward for it. So why would you want to learn something that's going to slow you down, that's going to have some type of acceptable complication rate while you're getting through that learning curve? There's just no points. Like, I get it. If you're in your 50s and you're, you know, the peak of your career, why are you going to go learn all these minimally invasive or robot or emerging technology things? Like, you're already the king. Similarly, the people that are like at the key figures of these um fellowship and spine training programs, both neurosurgery and spine surgery, you know, those are those people. So they're not going to want to be integrating some of this new technology when they're already doing great at what they're doing. So I think as people in their, you know, mid-40s are kind of rising through the ranks, they're going to demand this new technology at their hospital systems, at their training center, then those coming through will have that new technology and they'll grow up with it. So I think it just is kind of a slow trickle-down effect that you have to have. It's not like someone can just all of a sudden learn how to do these things. They have to be taught by someone or have someone that's kind of influencing them to tell them this is the way to go. And that's, you know, one of the things I've seen on Instagram. I've become pretty good friends with probably seven or eight spine surgeons I would have never have met my whole life, but because we interact with each other, we now, like, have each other's cell phone. I text them cases and all this stuff just because they're using some of this technology that I wasn't as familiar with. And I was like, man, this, this guy's killing it. And, like, like, outside of Denver, and I just want to learn more about that also. Now, let me let – me, um... I was going to hold off to write, write about this, but shit, we're, we're talking about it now, so I might as well bring it up. So let me put some uh, a thought out there, and I want to hear your, your reaction to this. And let's pretend that a, let's, a, new, a new spine technology comes out, something, something new. doesn't matter what it okay. is, but something that's obviously going to uh, level the playing field for something important between, let's say, uh, 
younger, newer surgeons out of training versus somebody who's been doing it for 10 or 20, 30 years, right? Not every doc surgeon who let's say is 20, 30 years out of training is going to be the best at what they're doing. Cause in their, in their uh, ge geography, you know, let's say it's not a small town. Let's say that it's a medium sized city. Even there's going to be someone else who might be better. So there's going to be the King or the queen. And then there's gonna be everybody else. Everybody else who's been doing this for 20 or 30 years is saying, I need something to kind of level the playing field. Like I need to like pass this person. Like I'm, I just can't do it right now, purely on technique. And so is it far fetched to say this new spine technology comes out? There is a handful, three, four, five, ten younger surgeons out of training who are like, we're going to we're going to push this as the new standard, right? They're all in different right. geographies, but they work together. They're like, we have the vision, but we're going to push this. And through their own personal marketing, you can call it micro influencer marketing, other people who are let's say 30, 40 years into into practice see the new technology and be like, I'm so down to adopt that thing because that's the thing that's going to give me an edge over this other person who just by coincidence has been in this area longer, has his tenureship, blah, 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 all these things. I know I'm a better surgeon, but like, I can't overcome that. But this is the one thing that'll make me different enough to compete. Is that a possibility to help drive adoption? Dude, for sure. Some of these technologies, like the only way you get to know about these new things is let's go back 10 years. How do you know about new technologies? One, you go to a conference that's every year in a city that's not where you live. You, you, you go to NAS or ESMIS. Right. And like, okay, that's great. But like a lot of people with young kids, not as able to go every year. So that's the only way you, one, learn about it. Or two, you have your rep and kind of knocking at your door trying to tell you new things. It's like, I don't know. Does anyone else do it? They tell you people's names in town. You're like, yeah, those guys are kind of sketchy. I don't know if I want to use that. Okay. So that's the normal way of how you figure out new things. Nowadays, we have, just as we were saying, LinkedIn and Instagram, where you're able to just look here you were able to value people's opinions based on their prior cases they've done, prior cases they've shared, prior management decisions they made. And when you see they're using something slick, you're like, hey, I would actually be pretty interested in that. If you're in medical sales, I wanted to share something with you that's going to help you because I'm sure that like everyone else, you're struggling. You're struggling to book demos. You're struggling to get meetings. You're struggling to sell. Everybody's quota went up. But since the pandemic, hospital access has gone down, your ability to engage physicians has gone down, and yet your company probably hasn't even invested in helping you figure out how do you survive this new normal. So your career growth really falls on you. But what do you do? Well, I was in the same situation many years ago, and that's why I turned to using social media and LinkedIn to not only position myself as a thought leader in my industry, but more importantly, be able to sell and influence at scale, whether it's hospital administrators or physicians. And I saw this happen specifically a few years ago when in the middle of the pandemic, I used LinkedIn to book 35 deals. That's right, 35 deals, 35 different hospitals in 60 days right? And that was through LinkedIn. And now LinkedIn is growing in its popularity with physicians. Just this week, I checked with Definitive Healthcare. There's 22,000 orthopedic surgeons in the United States alone. 16,000 of them are on LinkedIn and over 2,000 of them are actively posting on LinkedIn. That's not counting the number of surgeons who are on there who are just liking content, commenting, and reading. So how do you take advantage of this? This is why I created my program, the Medical Sales Network Effects Program. It's a program that teaches you how to influence and sell at scale without stepping in a hospital. And more importantly, how do you position yourself, not only as a thought leader for your company, but really for your career? Because I don't know about you, but this is probably not gonna be the last place that you work. So for my podcast listeners, I have a special 
uh, offer for you. This program is going to be going up in price. It's about $5,000. It's not cheap, right? And at the moment, it's $3,500. At the end of the month, it'll bump up. But just for you listening, I'm going to give you $1,000 off so you can sign up for the program. It's an online course. You can watch the, the uh, content anytime. Plus, every week we have these live coaching calls. And people can either attend live or submit questions. And since it's recorded, they can check it out later. And I get all kinds of questions like, you know, how do I do on-demand demos? Or I'm in medical devices. How do I transition to SaaS sales, right? Whatever the question is, I find a way to answer it. And if not, I bring an expert on. So you get those live coaching calls, which you have uh, full access to, plus this amazing content and program specifically made to help you scale what you're doing and help you take your career to the next level. So if you're interested in joining the program, check the link in the show notes below and join today before the price goes up. Can't wait to see you in the program. So my training was big on expandable T-Lift cages. At, like we used the old Globus cage a ton, like with Dr. Ficaro and Kepler, or actually Ficaro didn't use it a lot. He used a different one. He used the C-spine one, I think. Uh, but Kepler, like we're all big expandable. I think expandable technology is great. You get uh, we're doing a lot of open cases, so you obviously are open decompression, but if they expand, then that's indirect decompression built in. So it's like, man, you really just can't mess up. The nice thing about this cage, it opens medial lateral. And I keep saying, like, that's the future of these expandable that's cages. That's really interesting. So you like, that's super footprint. interesting. I know. The only problem is, like, because it's new and fancy, like, certain hospitals, um, pretty much don't want it it's pretty expensive, I guess. And, you know, it's a whole long can of worms I'm opening, and I'm sure I'm going to get text messages, good and bad for it. But, you know, I think it's a great technology. It's one of the things that I consider it a game changer. They probably love that I consider it a game changer, um, but it's just something like that. And so if I'm able to show other people it, then that helps. You know, I say in some cases it can help replace an A-lift. And I got buddies who practice in New Jersey, and they said uh, there are groups that do, like, their vascular approach for A-lift. They won't do it if it's a Medicare patient, which is a totally different bit, and I get. And, like, you know, most people that need A-lifts are over 65, and so I was like, man, that sucks. So you just can't do a lifts. He's like, no, I got to do O-lifts, which are fine, a little more dangerous, but fine. Or I could do a T-lift at 5.1. If I'm using a dinky cage the size of your pinky, like, man, <laughs> you're really doing any difference there? So I was like, you should look at this cage. It's like, you know, it's like the size of like two of my thumbs. It's nice and giant. Maybe it's even bigger than that. Um, so, but that's, again, kind of circling back to not to be a five-minute promo for the technology that neither of us have any stake in. Again, you're not paid. You're not paid by them, like, at all. I know. Yeah. So the whole but, but, argument, the whole argument with that oh, is go like we got to get, we got to get. Uh, that's like where social media is very helpful. It's like you can kind of promote certain totally. things. Yeah, and you know something that I would say, I, I, surgeons, doctors don't want to say this. I'm going to say this for physicians. I'm I want to live in a society where physicians are getting paid and they're getting paid really damn well. Because what pisses me off, me, okay, and I think every surgeon who's listening to this is going to say, hell yeah, like a hundred percent is that you as a surgeon will be in a case killing yourself, taking all kinds of risks again, right? You know, not only your, you know, your health in terms of how many hours you're in there, but of course, like if something doesn't go, go well, and a lot of times like the patient walks out and because let's say they don't listen to you for certain things, they do something stupid, you know, like, so there's all kinds of risks, right? You yeah. get paid net 30, net 60, net 90, the reps in the room and everybody else gets paid that day. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not the reps. It's not the reps' fault, but it's, it is what it is, right? Yeah. So my thing is, is if you like something, and and let's put something else out there, in the medical world, the spine world is is a is a dirty world. You have like you know you have physician owns pods. Like there's a lot there's there's a lot of stuff there, but that still being said, I don't think there's anything wrong if a surgeon 
uses the technology that they like, right? It's not, you know, it's one thing if it's, if they're getting paid more to use that technology and if they don't get paid, they're not going to use it for the pay. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is if you're going to go out of your way to use your platform that you took time to build up over the years and you put time and effort into, into, into it, and you're going to promote it to make it easier for somebody else to go and grow their business, you should be getting paid for that. Period. End of story. I'm going on record saying that that needs to happen. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like it's a slippery slope. So you know, I, it, I agree to it, an extent. Everything's a slippery slope, though, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so there's certain things I like more than others. Um, doesn't mean just because I tell people I like them that someone should get paid to do it. But you know, that's kind of the nice thing about even LinkedIn is I, I see new technologies on there. There's been a couple actually that I saw and I was like, I was like, man, that's pretty sweet. And so I'll shoot that either to one of my like four reps I work with and be like, is this something we can get our hands on? And you know, usually they always say yes, and we try it out, and that's kind of how it goes. And so yeah. for that, I wouldn't. And, I just shoot in that link. And look, something something even simpler. You like, let's say you like something, and this happens in the consumer world. I don't see why it's it's not it's not okay for the physician world. And you can look these companies. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about doesn't fall under the uh, sun. Some of it doesn't fall under like sunshine act or sunshine act or Stark law. Anything that does, they can document it. And let's just say, look, you took time to create some content. You know, if they want to take it and repurpose it themselves, you should be paid for that content, right? Yeah. I, I think I think companies need to go out of their way to think about physicians. And let, let's get away from the promotional stuff. Let's look at something simple as labs. I don't think it, you know, I think I think companies need to figure out how to how to do a better job taking care of surgeons. If you go and do a lab, right? And let's say a lot of young surgeons who come out there in debt and everything, you get paid what? you know, a few hundred bucks, maybe a thousand bucks that day to teach a lab. Meanwhile, the company has like 10, 20, 30 surgeons showing up and, you know, they they can make a lot of profit off that. Now, I'm not saying, and this is, again, this is another solution. So I'm not saying that industry needs to go and start throw, you know, paying like in, insane. Some surgeons come to me and they're like, yeah, I'll do this lab and you got to pay me this much. I'm like, no, that's crazy. But they have to think about other things to help surgeons. So for example, when I was early on in my career, where I couldn't pay a surgeon, you know, that kind of money, I'd say, look, here's what I can help. I know you're trying to, let's say, build a brand online. We can help promote some of your posts. For example, I can teach you some things that will make you more proficient at these things. You know, those kind of things. That, that's that's how they have to think. And I think that reps who think more about their surgeons say, like, look, there's a small business owner. What are some other ways we can help? I, I think that's a, that becomes a win-win for everybody. Yeah, that's kind of where even, like, locally they're like um... – you know, I would say there's not too much difference between pedicle screws. They're all the same. There is a fair amount of difference between certain cages. Ooh, otherwise, like blasphemy. The big, <laughs> the big thing is like the added value of say your rep, and you know, if a reps kind of tie the community. It's like, hey, like, and they want to kind of help introduce you to some of their um, other colleagues who are like in the medical field. Like, that's a nice added benefit in terms of kind of non-monetary way a rep kind of help you just kind of grow your name. That's the whole thing. Like, I don't expect them to go, you know have striker for instance like the striker reps dropping off my business cards at you know pain centers or something like that but if they can help like make connections or bridge gaps like two people that have similar interests similar age groups similar backgrounds um that's kind of a nice way i totally be looking for tell me what's what's your take on uh the value of a rep for me i think there's a lot of like reps that provide no value they just literally show up and throw throw a product at you and sell there are the other ones though that i feel like are are like a right hand of a surgeon so what what's your idea of like a great rep okay so reps were 
a huge part of my training, especially in residency for like ortho trauma, for instance. Like there'll be certain things, you know, when you're running two rooms, you're attending to the other room and you're like to you and the chief resident, you're kind of like trying to figure it out also. Like even like starting points on nails, the reps are indispensable. I feel like, you know, they get a bad name. Like, man, these reps have mm-hmm. so much more experience. Sometimes I joke and say, it's like, man, you've done this more than I have. Like I'm just moving my hand. You, you kind of guide me. Like, what do you think I need next? And they can tell you like, oh, move your hand this way, move your hand that way. The reps are teachers in a way. Like they, again, they've been doing it for certain fields. They've been doing it much longer than some of the surgeons have. So they're mm-hmm. huge. kind of now on the other side, now that I've, uh, you know, have a significant handful of cases under my belt and work with reps. Like still, again, I'm young in the game. So like a lot of these reps, I'd say most of them have more total case volume than I have. It doesn't, you know, different skill sets in terms of doing it. I always quote my hero who I light a candle for every night, Mike Wang down at Miami. He would always say a monkey could do spine surgery. He says, you can teach a monkey how to move their hands a certain way. He's like, that's not the hard part. The hard part is like the diagnosis, kind of knowing what to do next. Fortunately, I haven't had like, I can't think of like any time where I was like completely stumped about something like that. But it's nice when, like, when, the, when the reps thinking about the next step, or when the reps knowing that you're going to need a certain tool next and they have it up, when a rep knows what type of drain you like to use, the rep knows uh, what music you like to have on, the rep knows you like an x-ray shield in the room because you don't like to wear lead and you don't wear, you know, just those little things. That's kind of where the reps to me help stand out. It's not just bringing the screw. It's kind of knowing the next steps and knowing kind of maybe some bailout options or knowing oh, maybe you should use this table, or hey, maybe this would be a good navigation case that you posted with us that you didn't post for navigation. Like, sometimes those T1 screws, I saw this patient's BMI, like, maybe you want to nab that. I'm like, oh, that's actually a good idea. That's where they really stand out. I totally agree. And, you know, um, I think just by coincidence, like, my first gig was at Mazor Robotics, which was the first robotics spine company. And for us, like, the clinical sales reps, we had to be in every case because we technically controlled the robot and worked with the surgeons on planning. And we had to really learn these things like inside and out so we can really be looked at as a peer. And that, that started to extend beyond just the robotic spine case. We had to know about the um, disectomy. We had to know about practice marking of a variety of different things. And I feel like those reps still exist. But a lot of people, I feel like the bigger the company, the less likely the rep does that because they just lean on the brand of the company. And they're like, yeah, whatever. It's not my thing. Yeah, some do agree. I mean, there's I sometimes jokingly say, like, with my anesthesiologist I'm good as buddies with, like, there are many cases I do where we count and there's nine different reps in the room. And, like, it's, I'm like, man, <laughs> how is it, like, there's so much money going around in this room that is not going to the physicians. Like, he's like, I know, he's like, I guarantee they're all making more money on this case than both you and I. And you're on the hook for anything that happens for the next 90 days. And any money you make, you have to divide up amongst your staff and give, you know, 40% to the government. He's like, so it's just outstanding, like, how many reps are in the room and like how much training do each of them have? You know, that said, I really don't have a bad rep I've worked with. I know I'm not saying this because I doubt any of them are ever going to listen to this podcast, but for the most part, you know, companies know what they're doing. If they're trying to recruit a new doctor to kind of get some of their business, they're usually sending some of their best uh, team members. Um, so I've been pretty lucky on that standpoint. And that's nice. You know, kind of starting out them having a planned uh, C, D, E, and F is good. Cause I might only have like A, B, and C. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think, um, you know, at least for me, um, that's one thing that I'm hoping to influence more, which is the training of, of sales reps and, you know, the marketers as well, because I feel that very much to, to the training that we got in medical school, you really got to know what the hell you're doing in, in this industry. It's not, it's not, and I think that's what keeps me in, in the meds. I mean, look, I had a, st- a you know, one year stint, uh, which felt like five years because it was a startup in the SaaS fintech world. And I came back to medtech because there's complexity in this in this field that's that's unlike anything else, 
And you really have to know what you're doing, how things work, even something as simple as like, there is a big difference. And, and you tell me, I could be wrong about this. So if I'm wrong, just call me on them. <laughs> there's a big, there's a big difference on average, psychologically, when you're dealing with a spine surgeon who's neurosurgically trained and a spine surgeon that is orthopedically trained, there's a difference. Yeah, I think there's definitely a difference. I don't know. Um, I think just yeah, there's not a that one sure. is better than the other. Yeah, not I, that agree. One that's I agree. I'm better than the other. Either. Just, just, just that there, there, there is there, there are differences there that you have to How understand about this? and appreciate. Super broad generalizations here. Okay, we're doing super broad. Yeah, generalizations. super broad, super broad. As a broad generalization, orthopedic programs are larger in terms of maybe the average size is four, five, six. Mine, the one I was in was seven. That's considered a pretty big one a year, and, and it's five years. So there's 35 of you. Broad generalization neurosurgery maybe has one, two, three, some of them are like really big, have four. So there's smaller, again, seven years. So maybe the whole body um, total evils out. The reason I'm getting to that is also like, just towards your training, there's a little more maybe camaraderie in one where you have a big program. Also very broad generalization. Orthopedics as a stereotype are former athletes, maybe former jocks, people who wanted to go pro and got a sports injury. It's kind of the classic thing. Like they got a sports injury and that was their exposure to medicine and they wanted to go into medicine. And then because they saw an orthodoc, now they want to be an orthodoc. Again, broad generalization. So broad, and then neurosurgery, you know, you think, maybe I think most people think brain is the first thing that goes to mind. Like you see a neurosurgeon, you think a brain surgeon. So those broad generalization, very smart people, very people that are very like focused on like, oh, I want to be a brain surgeon. I want to be like kind of king of the castle, king of the world because I'm a brain surgeon. It doesn't get sexier than that. Whereas ortho, you know, you're just thinking about pumping weights, fixing bones, things like that. And so then when you go to spine, kind of things align again, but you still have kind of the background of how you got there. So again, that, and that's, broad generalization. Yeah, that's broad kind generalization, of the background of neurosurgery versus ortho. You get the spine, it's a little different but, background. But this is why like NAS is so interesting to me because when you see these podiums, you know, you have a you have a collision of like neurosurgeons and, and orthopedic surgeons. It's just really fascinating to see, which by the way, if you if you, you probably follow him, uh, Dr. Glauco McFeckin, yep. Yep. The, oh my yeah. god! Yeah, that's, yeah. The, you saw you saw the orthopedic ones. Like, yeah. Oh man, Did you, they're so accurate. Orthopedic. Dude, that was a new find. For me. So, that guy's awesome. Oh uh, yeah, no. The the part from the ortho it was the for for the audience listening. There was um, he's a physician who does TikTok videos. So he did one on the or, you know an orthopedic uh, surgeon like interviewing for residency with the program director, and he's like. <laughs> Program director, bro, resident, bro, what's yeah. up? And he's like, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm, you know, born in Iowa, the strongest of five children. And he's like, great. He's like, what are you thinking about right now? Arm wrestling. You know, and yeah, I think exactly. he asked another, like another question, like about, um, like, like what, what is bone marrow? And his answer was like, doesn't matter. That's internal medicine's problem. Yeah, something like that. It's like, what's your favorite tool? It's like hammer. He's like, he's like, what are you going to do right now? He's like, arm wrestle. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he's right. That's again, the broad, you know, it's funny because like back, uh, you know, all of our attendings would tell us, man, when we were going through it, if you had the lowest grades for your, like your standardized testing, you got into ortho. Ortho is the easiest thing to get into. Now it's probably, it probably goes derm, plastics, then ortho. Ortho is probably the hardest to get into because there's um, just so many more people going to it. There's more spots than probably derm. But if you look at all like the advanced metrics, it's, you know, ortho is kind of the hardest thing to get into now. It's one of those things where, I look back at like where I went to college, SMU, which I think is a pretty good school. Like, I don't think now I could get into SMU. Like, it's gotten so much better. I think the same thing with ortho. Like, man, I yeah. don't know. Like, I was pretty accomplished in med school. But, like, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would go to Miami if I could try again. How about that? Yeah, no, no, no. I hear, it. and you know what's, you know what's interesting, and just again, 
these are the kind of things that I tell reps, like you have to start really, you have to understand who you're working with and this, and, and the field, like historically culture and everything to understand these things there. Becker's came out with a study that showed, um, level of satisfaction with their jobs, right. And, or mm -hmm. their, their jobs and, and, and not their jobs, level of satisfaction with how much they're paid and orthopedic surgeons were like number like nine or 10, like they were really low down. And my, my, my interpretation of that, and I was explaining this to somebody who's a young rep, he's like, oh, like, why, why, why are they unhappy with their pay? I'm like, it's not that orthopedic surgeons are, feel like they're not getting paid enough, is that most orthopedic surgeons, if not all of them, are extremely competitive, very entrepreneurial, very, you know, very much in terms of like building. So that's never going to change. Right. I think at the very yeah. top was like psychiatrists. I'm like, and it's not, it's not, you know, most psychiatrists, you know, they, they, they do want to, I know, I know a few, they want to get paid more, but they're a lot more okay with just kind of coasting and like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with things are and everything. Orthopedic yeah. surgeons every year. It's like, how can I go bigger and, you know, bigger and more, you yeah, know, that's what we always joked about whenever anesthesia would delay us or like, or whenever they'd be talking about, they had like several weeks off or vacation or just like the work as like, Hey man, like, they picked anesthesia for a reason. You can't rip on them. Like, this is what they wanted to do. So it's like, <laughs> and, who are we to be like, hey, you got to work harder or faster or something like that. It's like, man, like, that was like your choice. That's true. Like, like, well, this is it. And it, it, like, just going going even further, like, my, so my dad, dad's a general surgeon, trained at Cook County Hospital, like, in the 70s. And his thing was, like, they used to always make fun of the orthopedic surgeons because they're like, they're like, oh, that's such a nice job. You know, you like, really yeah. nice hours and everything. Like, that's really cute, guys. These kind of yeah, colloquialisms in medicine are great. So coming, you know, <laughs> getting, getting, I guess, I don't know if there's even a track anymore on this, on this episode, which is why this episode is going to be just absolutely fantastic. So uh, tell me a little bit more about some other technologies you feel like, again, 15 years from now, I don't want to do something nuts like 40, 50 years from now. It's just like, that's just too far out. The farther you go out, it's just the harder it is to predict. But based on what you're seeing right now, you just came out of training. You're, you're getting exposed to a lot of different technologies. Like what are some other things that you feel that maybe not become standard, but just you're expecting to happen in the next 10 or 15 years in spine? So you keep hearing about like artificial intelligence and spine surgery. It sounds cute, but really the key, the key argument that is being able to plug in certain metrics of the patient, like they're standardized scored called like one for the neck, one for the back called like ODI and how much back pain you can enter that enter some of the patients, um, walking characteristics, their age, some of their demographics, and it kind of can spit out and tell you what kind of surgery and MRI characteristics, it kind of spit out and tell you which surgery is the most helpful for patients. Sometimes we're maybe decompressing two or three extra levels than we need to, or fusing two or three extra levels than we need to just because maybe their MRI looks bad on multiple levels. So we can kind of pinpoint, hey, with this type of deformity, with this type of pathology and this patient's, uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's an 89-year-old lady, we don't need to be doing like a four-level fusion on her, for instance, like that. Maybe it's just a laminectomy. Some of these things we know, but if we can have like a computer model that's easy to use, that can only just do it for us, like it's just built in the background. Like right now, some of these things exist, but man, I got to go to a website. I got to enter all the patient stuff. I have to measure things on my computer. I got to, you know, it's going to add like 40 minutes. It's all manual. Me. Yeah. Exactly. So if there's something, you know, 10 years from now where it's like just already pre-populated, like that'd be great. That said, the insurance companies would probably get a hold of that and find some way to suck more money out of the surgeons so that the hospital administrators could have more money. That'd be kind of the one downside of some of the AI technology. Yeah, it's true. The unfortunate thing about the EMR is that it's really just a massive billing tool that's really what the emr is it's just you know it's it's kind of an unfortunate thing yep. what you know what so something that's come up uh and i heard about it and i 
I maybe maybe I just been out of spine for a few, so I, it was kind of a shock to me. But what's your take? Have you heard more about these like in office kyphoplasties? I have. I thoughts don't. I don't know, man. I guess it's one of those things where. So how about this? I thought they were kind of crazy, barbaric. But then, like some guy I respect pretty highly, I found out was doing them, and I'm like, hey, maybe like I'm the bad guy. Like I'm taking this. You know, I don't do too many kyphoplasties anymore. I kind of did when I was first started out. Now it's kind of if I've done one before on a patient, it's hard for me to send her to someone else to do it. But like, you know, if it's some like 80 to 8 year old lady and it's super expensive and like, you know, just a drain on the whole healthcare system and it's gonna, you know, that's like a three hour. You know, the kyphoplasty itself takes. 15 minutes, but like getting into the OR pre-op, you know, they're not healthy cardiac clearance. I don't know, man, maybe getting through the three layers of fascia. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, maybe doing in the office, like is better for the patient. It's more immediate relief. We're not going through all this stuff. So I don't know. It's one of those things where sometimes like I do this frequently when I see something crazy, I'm like, man, am I the bad guy here? Like maybe I'm wrong. I really try to do that with a lot of things like flip on the other side. It's like, maybe I'm the bad guy or like, like maybe the, I think I'm doing it great, but like maybe I'm not. Maybe this guy was doing something I think is crazy. Like this is the future. So I don't know, man. It's uh, again, it's the same thing through social media. Like I found out via social media he was doing it, and I texted him. I was like, man, like doing these in the office, like it sounds crazy. He's like, yeah, like you know, definitely hurts the patients. Like maybe a little more because they're not fully sedated, but they're in and out. I'm like, so uh, I don't know, man. Again, I don't know if that's uh, I'm just not. I'm definitely just not the expert on that. Yeah, no, it's again, there's like a lot of really interesting things that are coming up. There's, there's, there's another one. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Alok, Alok Shar, Sharhan. Sharhan, have you heard of Alok Sharhan? No. So he's up in the Northeast, and I actually, oh, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, I yeah, I have him. He's like in New Jersey, I think. He, he's in New Jersey, right? that's right. And he's doing, he's doing like, he's doing literally awake spinal, spinal uh, surgery. Yep. Which yeah, I, need, he, uh... I need to get into the details of that. But no, I, I'm a I believer. Like, I don't do it myself. I'm a believer. Mike Wing was another guy at Miami. He really popularized that also. And like, man, I saw it happen. Like these patients, no joke, would come into the OR and then like under a minute, sorry, under an hour, it would be like 58 minutes, like very frequently would get like a one level T lift even. And they're in, they what? Know, did such little narcotics. I do. I swear to God, I saw it. And then people would be like, oh, were they doing this for the wrong indications? And one, I'd slap them forever speaking illy of illy, ill advise of Mike Wang, but no, they weren't. And, and they'd be like, oh, those patients even do well. And I was like, man, when I was with them on my like, rotations, like they did great. And so his thing, he would always harp on were indications. I had some of the reps come to my office the other day, kind of uh, pitching some of that, the same technology he was using, not the awake part. And I was like, all right, so what are the indications? They're like, anything, you name it. I'm like, is it like, you know, older yeah, patients? The they're oh, like, God. right. And they're like, they could be some of their forties, could be some of their eighties. And I was like, and then I told them, well, Mike Wang, like, like the godfather of all this, he was going to really preach the indications. I was like, you know, honestly, I didn't really pay too much attention to it back then because I'm still trying to figure out, like, how to tie my shoes when I'm wearing a boot when I'm in residency. But that's kind of my argument for it. It's like, I saw it. I know it works if it's done for the right indications. And, you know, I'm a believer in it. I'm not doing it myself. I talked to my anesthesiologist about it, I think, a couple months ago. Um, and he was like, I mean, why? And I was like, I kind of told him. He was like, I don't know, man. He's like, you got to kind of really convince me. He's like, I'm not saying no. Like, we'll figure it out. But, um I do think there's a future there, but you have to have the right technologies to do that. You got to be doing certain and, cases pretty quickly, just like um, and, like some of the like the spinology equipment, like where you can do the mm-hmm. T-list pretty quickly. Yeah, and the right education. And I think you know, it's just again, because I know a lot of reps are going to be listening to this. Like the thing that you mentioned, Chad, is that some reps I feel are just too slick, and it's just I don't care what physician you're dealing with. It's just a great way to lose credibility. 
you know, the best reps that I that I know that I was mentored by. So some guys that can, who who come to mind: Jason Carl, uh, Sean Stewart, uh, Matt Ashari, Robert Reedlove. You know, when they when we were at Mazor, you know, they never talked like that. When a surgeon said, "Can we can we use the robot for this?" Even if the answer was yes, they were extremely methodical and and intentional about how they answered. And it was very much like peer to peer talking about it. And if you see like surgeons when they talk to each other. It's it's very rare, like surgeon getting excited. Oh, this is the this is awesome. You should do this. It's very like calm and collected. It's like yeah, you know, like here's the good side. Here are the indications. Here's this. Here's that. Sure. And, and it, you know, a very conservative approach. And I just feel like the some of these sales reps are just like running guns, just slinging it. You know, you know, challenger sales, spin selling. And I'm, I'm just like guys, like you're not doing you're not doing yourselves any favor, and then you're not doing other reps any favors. Because there's surgeons, I, so it's great that you had a good experience with reps. There's surgeons I know who dealt with those kind of reps through training, and so any rep that they that they meet, just immediately, they're just extremely skeptical of them. You know? Yeah. Again, I've been extremely fortunate. Like I don't know. I just think, and I'm also just joking to say I'm a bad judge of character. So a lot of the people I meet, I think are awesome. <laughs> and who knows? <laughs> What, what, you know, and I want to be mindful of your time. Cause again, we're doing this on a Saturday. You just came, came back from clinic. So I appreciate that. What, um, rounding, but yeah, what, <laughs> what, what, you know, currently like in, in, in the, in the world of spine, like what are some things that, what are some things that do excite you that are going on today and things that you, you kind of wish would change? So I think some things that change it's again, every, I hate cliche expressions, but insurance companies on some of the peer-to-peers I have to do when I have to, like the best peer-to-peers are when I started, they sometimes will say, by the way, I'm a neurosurgeon just to give you some background. And I always, like, I've only had that like four or five times. Every time I'm just like, fantastic. Because it's like usually for an indirect decompression case. And I'm like, man, like this is a neurosurgeon's, like this was y'all's thing. Like how am I having to defend this to you? And usually when I just kind of get like two cents into it, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm not sure why this was a peer-to-peer. I'd love to, yeah, it's approved. Here's the, here's approval number. Other times, they sometimes will, you know, I'm always super nice. Kill them with kindness. It's no point in yelling and trying to fight them. It's like, look, you need them so much. Just for prior authorizations, for, right? For prior author, like the case, like, oh, we're not approving X, Y, and Z. When they're like, well, you know, like, like just kind of bear with me. Like, I'm a I, I'm pediatrician trained. And I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, this isn't peer-to-peer. Just because we What's both graduated yeah. med school doesn't mean we're peers. Th- like, that's exactly sure, we're, we're right. We're friends with each other. But, like, I, I don't have to explain, like, it makes, what it makes no sense. is. It makes no sense. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. I, like, it's insane. It's an, it literally insane to me that this happens. Right. And what you're saying is, like, not far-fetched. Like, the, again, spine surgeon and your peer-to-peer is, like, with somebody who's a pediatrician. And not even, like, <laughs> not even a few years out of trading. Like, Right. So you know? it's, that's kind of one of the, you know, again, cliche. Like, everyone's going to say, oh, the insurance companies are the bad guys. But, like, man, you Google, like, what the revenues are, what the profits are. It's, like... I don't know, like some of these for-profit insurance companies, again, maybe if I talk to you about it and put a flag on my things, like, you know, that seems like a problem to me that these patients, you know, if you think your lifetime, it wouldn't be hard. You can calculate it on Google tonight. Like how much you're, you're paying hundreds of thousands into insurance during your lifetime. And like, man, if you want a surgery and your surgeon that you trust, you value that other people sent you to because they trust the value says like, I am positive, I'm extremely confident this surgery is something you need. Like, who is some third party? Like, in what world do you get to have some third party be like, mm, sorry, thanks for all your money you've paid us, but, like, we're going to have you have to do this first. It's like, I don't know, man. Like, the surgeon's pretty comfortable, and I've, I've paid for the right to have this surgery. 
Yeah, I know. And, you know, and it, again, one one heuristic that I like is that if you're dealing with a really complicated situation where the consequences are not that bad, but the upside is huge and and money's involved, you're going to have like bad, bad behavior. And so like today, I remember, and I'm reading it right now, one of the things I was trending on Twitter from the LA Times was this uh, column that says, leaked SoCal hospital records reveal huge automated markups for healthcare. And it's talking about like, you know, in, in different hospitals, like there's huge markups and everything. And I retweeted that and I said like, Anybody who's surprised about this is like the same kind of person who's like surprised yeah. by like, oh my God, my, you mean the, my, the government lies to me? Like, yeah. yeah, hospitals mark these things up. Are you kidding me? Like what, this is not news people. Like what, you know? Yeah, I agree. Like you see like what they like charge for like, for like hospital drapes or like a towel or like a ray tech or things like that. And like, I don't know, I guess I get it because they need to make up costs when they treat underinsured patients like that. What, so I don't know. I'm not what about, good authority on that part. But what about yeah? So one of the things that we're seeing more in healthcare, and again, I don't know if you're if you're if you're experiencing this yourself, is that all the data has been showing that qualitatively and quantitatively, doing taking care of patients in the ASC setting, in the outpatient setting, better quality of care, a lot cheaper. I mean, from for spine surgeons, like, do you see that as well on your side as well? Definitely. That's where you know all the publications they come out and say that um, again, PlayStation say hey, that there's many things like neurosurgery, journal neurosurgery. The spine journal if you just search asc and outcomes that's where it is it is cheaper to do it there again there is some bias to it because if they're a older sicker patient you're not going to do it there and you know pound for pound those patients they're going to have more cost associated with them so i agree with those biased statements but that said like the ascs are kind of where it's at um, the only problem sometimes ascs is that it's, it varies by state law in terms of what to, what's outpatient. Is that same day? Is that six hours? Is that 23 hours? Some states have that as two days. So that's some of mm -hmm. the discrepancy. And I like it should be state run. That's kind of, you know, I'm, uh, I live in Texas. We're all about states' rights and, you know, local government's rights, things like that. Totally. So I'm not arguing for that necessarily. Uh, but in terms of saying, like, oh, I do all my things outpatient, and you go on the podium and says that, it's like, well, is that they're going home that day or are they going home within 23 hours or are you allowed to keep them for two days, but that's still outpatient. So I think there seems to be a little more, not in a malicious way, there's a little more transparency when someone says they're doing outpatient fusions. Um, if you're trying to preach that to educate others, like tell me what outpatient means legally for you. That's a good point. I didn't realize that. I did not realize that. And that's a really good point. Chuck, I want to be mindful of your time. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up, but the, the sort of the end of the show is that we do a little bit of rapid fire questions before you get into the rapid fire question. Any, anything else that you, you want to, you want to touch on or share before we, before you get into rapid fire? No, man, I'm just proud of you of all you accomplished. I'm so happy. You're going to be a dad. I'm glad all your under armor shirts Thanks, from are going to fit your child and <laughs> the first year of life. So that's really exciting. This is super tight. I know Reed Flora, if you ever listen to this, is going to love, and Jared is going to love that statement. Oh, man. That's you right. Look like, you look like the evil Spider-Man, we always said, with uh, the skin-tight clothes. That's true. <laughs> I, 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 I'll I, never forget uh, Jonathan. Uh, I can't remember his yeah. last name. He's, he's like... He's like Mr. Stretch, man. He's so tall. But I remember that he dressed up as me for Halloween and had like a really amazing mustache on. I I yeah. never felt more ins more insulted and and flattered at the same time. Isn't that, <laughs> people talking to, people talking about you. That's all we need. I don't good or bad. Being on their minds. That's oh, the, that's absolutely. The yeah, there we go. I live in. 
That's that is exactly right, man. That is exactly right. All right. So rapid fire questions. You can take as long as you want to answer these questions, but the quicker you answer them, the quicker you get to the next one. And we're going to do just two or three of these. Okay. Start with an easy one. So during 2020, we were all in pandemic lockdown. A lot of us were at home. We, we, we fed our, our, our happiness through a thing called Amazon prime. What was the most interesting thing that you bought for under a hundred dollars via Amazon prime? It could be a book. It'd be, it could be a gadget. What is something you're just like, man, this thing is awesome. Under a hundred bucks. Uh, I lived in Philadelphia during COVID. And so it was on super lockdown, but the thing that we didn't have moving from Miami, just because when it rains in Miami, it's 20 minutes and you usually can have a cortadito during that time were umbrellas. And so my kid at the time and still is, is was obsessed with umbrellas. So we had some of like, the fanciest, coolest, like quad opening umbrellas you've ever seen because it rained all the time in Philly. It's not always sunny in Philadelphia, still a great city, but it's not <laughs> always sunny. Nice. Now, do you remember the name of the of the umbrella specifically or no? I'm not a paid spokesman for them, so I'm not giving them any. <laughs> <There's such> a... <laughs> no, I don't remember what well, you, know what? you know, it's Amazon. I'm, I'm gonna... It's probably an Amazon umbrella. I'm going to make, look, I'm going to make, we're going to help you make a merch, a merchandise store for your Instagram handle. And we're going to come with t-shirts that own, spine surgeon says, like, I'm sorry, I'm not a paid spokesperson for Instagram yeah, exactly. company name, but I love using this stuff. No, I love that. Okay. Next, next, next question is what book do you feel that you end up gifting or recommending most often to others? Um, you my read books, right? Sister, Spine surgeons not really. Books, right? Not really. There's a book. Man, I'm not going to be able to tell you the exact title. I, said, I think it's called, like, Stop Smoking Now. My sister-in-law used to smoke, and she said she read this book, and it, she quit that night. And I was like, okay. And, like, when I was telling her, like, I got two patients that kind of didn't know they were smokers, and I didn't know they were smokers. Like, get past that part, and they smoked. And now they have, like, a non-union after a neck surgery. She's like, you should give them this book. And so I did that. And I, I'm – you know, young in practice, you give way too many patients your cell phone number. The patient like texts me, be like, "Thank you so much for this book. I'm I'm quitting smoking tonight. I'm already four through four chapters." Wow. And I was like, "Wow, this book. I've never smoked. Like, you know, I'm, to need to read this book." I'm gonna look like it up. So, yeah, I'll, I'll look it up and a, leave it in the show notes. The link. I have it downstairs. Yeah, I mean, it's called like "Stop Smoking Now," but I'm sure there's like 40 books of that exact title. Uh, but that's nice. like a book. You know, I ordered seven of them, and you know, my patient says like, "We need a big surgery." Like, oh, I gotta quit smoking. I'm like. You know, if they meet the cut enough, I'll be like, I'll be like I got a book for you. So nice, nice. All right, a couple more. Um, so you know, the one thing that's, I think, part of any industry, but it's it's very much deeply embedded in the culture of medicine is this idea of mentorship and apprenticeship, right? Okay. Yes. So over time, and you mentioned one of you know, the great Mike Wang, uh, Michael uh, yeah. Wing. I'm sorry. Yeah, from Miami yeah. too, right? I never met him, but I, yep. I was, I'm, I'm familiar with him from, from my Missouri days. Um, so mentors inspire us and everything, but at the same time, like they tell us things that we need to hear. What was the most painful thing? And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be somebody from residency. It could be anything in your life. What was the most painful thing that someone told you that made you change for the better? Man, I think. Uh something that Frank Eismont, he's with our former spine chairman forever, or just chairman of orthopedics at Miami was my boss. Like one thing he would harp on me for every now and then was you got to pay attention to details. It's a cliche expression, but he's right. Like attention to details. I think everyone gets told that in their field. But that was something that he told me a lot. He's like, it's going to nip you in the butt one day if you're not paying attention to details. And so like, he's right. Like sometimes it looks like I'm nitpicking my um, office staff or whatever. He's like, Hey, like, 
I need that MRI report. They're like, well, isn't it clear here? It's like, no, you got to like, what if the MRI report says possible cancer in like the vertebral artery? And like, I just overlooked it. So like attention to details. Those are the details you got to look for. You got to read MRI reports. You got to read the hospital clearance notes. It might have the one line of that says cleared for surgery, but above it says could die, but cleared for surgery. So things like that is attention for details. And some of Dr. Eismont was appropriately pretty hard on me for, uh, but helped me be a better surgeon. That's a great one. Now, I guess that's why the saying is, you know, the devil's in the details, right? So Exactly. All right. So last question for you before you sign off. So I want you to pretend that for the next year, I take out a billboard. This billboard is going to go in front of every single major hospital, ASC, and every spine surgeon is going to see this billboard when they walk into surgery. What message did you put on that billboard and why? Can't be followed Donnelly Spine Consult Don, yeah. Instagram. Donnelly, no. At Donnelly Spine Consult TikTok. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's kind of a tough question in terms of what I'd want everyone to know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something not super cliche and cheesy like, like love There's nothing wrong with cliche. Like yeah. Why? What's wrong with that? We're well, going with know, that. Man. That's the first like, thing you said. It's like that, that's, like, that's like a little serious. I thought we were going to just like have a good old time here. So I don't uh, know. You can have a good old time too. If it was something like serious, it'd be like, like I'd say, call your parents. How about that? Everyone should call their parents at all times and be talking with them. If I couldn't do something <laughs> serious, then I'd have to say like DonleySpine.com. Um, just direct more people. <laughs> to, such a spine surgeon. Yeah. yeah. We'll I, put it in the show notes. Look, I'll, I'll look. We'll wrap it up on on a light note. Um, so again, the 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 field of spine. Uh, you know, there, there's because there's so much money in in it. You know, with hospitals and 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 there's a lot of hardware and technology and stuff. So there's all, of course, like a lot of crazy stories about like spine surgery back in the '80s and '90s. So you just hear all these crazy stories. And one of the funniest things I've ever heard was, and I won't mention who it is, but there is an older spine surgeon who's probably in his like 70s now, maybe 80s, just really, really well-known surgeon. And he said this at like a NAS conference, like jokingly, like when he was looking at, um, I think a robot or something, he said to like a group of, of like residents, he's like, or not a residents, uh, he was in front of a group of residents and there's another spine surgeon who's about the same age. And he looked at this other guy, <laughs> other guy and said, you remember the day, you remember the day, uh, back in the day when, um, when sex is dangerous and spine surgery was safe. <laughs> And I thought that was just the best, best, best thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Chet, man, what a, what a pleasure to have you on. We're definitely going to have you back on. I want to, I want to cover some like more specific technologies in spine, but this is a great way to kind of kick off and uh, super Dude, proud of it. you and, and, you know, glad that we got, we got reunited through the uh, wonders of Instagram and LinkedIn in this day and age. Exactly, man. I mean, that's how you keep up with people unless you're, sending out like birth announcements and holiday cards once a year like there's a way to kind of stay relevant stay on people's minds and you know if you're doing it stupid then don't do it and that's fine you know more followers for me <laughs> totally totally well everyone thanks for listening check out the the uh, notes and the links below we're leaving a lot of good stuff in there donley spine consult on instagram go give it a follow and i'll leave some other uh links to chat's uh handles thanks all we'll see you next time thanks omar
Thank you for listening to another episode of The State of MedTech. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib. Do us a favor. If you like this episode, share with somebody and go ahead on Apple and Spotify, wherever you are, leave a five-star review. Type a few nice notes about us. This is how we get other people to find the show. Thank you. and We'll see you next time. Hey friends, if you made it to this part, you made it to the very end of the podcast, please don't change. Do me a small favor. Just wait a few seconds. Listen to this ad at the very end. It helps the podcast out because we do get paid for it. And it's one way that we're able to bring you quality content like this. So do me a favor, spend just a few seconds. So many people do it. You should do it too. Spend a few seconds, listen to this ad, and then you can move on to your next episode. Thank you so much.